0: So we're continuing in our series on developing a biblical worldview with the message tonight on critical thinking, and I want to read here in just a moment really this entire section of scripture. I I narrowed it down, but then I broadened it back out, so I'm going to read from 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 12, and I'm going to go through verse 28 once I get to it, but I want to do a little bit of review, first of all, before we get to that. Uh, You have a handout, or you should have when you came in if you need one. There's still some left. And I open with this quote from James Orr, who wrote, In the Christian View of God and the World, uh, that there is a definite Christian view of things which has a character, coherence, and unity of its own and stands in sharp contrast with counter-theories and speculations. A Christian worldview has the stamp of reason and reality and can stand the test of history and experience. The source here is from the Gospel Project, James Orr quoted in there. Now, every person has a worldview, and that worldview is a combination of all that they believe to be true and what they believe becomes the driving force behind their emotions their decisions and their actions by way of review a biblical worldview answers six key questions origin how did it all begin that's creation identity what does it mean to be human this is the imago dei that we are formed and made in the image of god Chaos is what went wrong. That's when sin entered the world because of the fall. And then the purpose is why are we here, and that is to glorify God. Morality is how our right and wrong determined, with the answer being that's God's word. And then destiny, what happens to people when they die? This is the eternal reality of heaven and hell. Now, we focused on the doctrine of general revelation and the doctrine of special revelation. The doctrine of general revelation is by definition uh, meaning that God has revealed himself through general truths in nature that all people can see. They're evident uh, to the eye. The doctrine of special revelation is that God has revealed himself through the living word, Jesus, and through the written word, the Bible, and he has made himself known to us. Then we focused on what a meta-narrative is. The idea of a meta-narrative being an overarching account of interpretation of events and circumstances that provides a pattern or a structure of people's beliefs and gives meaning to their experiences. The word meta-narrative is not a biblical word. It's not a Christian word, so to speak, but the concept is when we think about the entire scope and span of the Bible. The Bible is a meta-narrative. It is a grand story. What is it about? It's about this story of the Bible that began with creation. We looked at that foundationally. The story of the Bible took a turn with the fall when sin entered into the world. And that is an answer and a reason, a framework uh, for theodicy and understanding of what went wrong in the world, suffering, and so on. And then the story of the Bible points to redemption from very early on, starting in Genesis 3 and verse 15, there's that promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And then the story of the Bible finds its pinnacle in restoration. We talked about how we are restored to Christ through faith in him, and God makes us new creatures, new creations in Christ Jesus. So in summary, the story of the Bible is about what God has done and will do to glorify himself, in the work of creation, redemption, and restoration. And now we come to this subject of critical thinking, and I want to pick up reading in First Thessalonians chapter 5, and I want to read verse 12 through verse 28. And here's what the scripture says. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Rejoice always, pray constantly, give thanks in everything, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't stifle the spirit. Don't despise prophecies, but test all things. Verse 21, hold on to what is good. Stay away from every kind of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. Brothers and sisters, pray for us also. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this letter be read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. What is critical thinking? Let me give you an idea of how to define it. Don't be confused when we talk about critical thinking by the word itself. The word critical is sometimes negatively associated with being judgmental, or fault-finding, or just criticizing things uh, routinely. But the type of critical thinking that we need is about using our abilities to evaluate ideas in an attempt to discover whether or not they are true or false. So if we're laying this framework together for a biblical worldview, then what critical thinking is going to do is it's going to use that framework as an overlay of what we're bringing in and out of our lives, and it's going to help us have some discernment to know what's true and what is false. Michael Scriven and Richard Paul said that critical thinking is the intellectually disciplined process of actively and skillfully conceptualizing, applying, analyzing, synthesizing, and or evaluating information that's gathered from or generated by observation, experience, reflection, reasoning, or communication as a guide to belief and action. So critical thinking enables us to establish the doctrines that are central to the Christian faith so that we understand that they're based solidly on scripture, on reason, and on available evidences or confirmation, whether it be fulfilled prophecy or archaeology or history or any number of other things that would uh, bring credibility to what we believe and these doctrines stand up to a careful examination hard questions are welcome because solid answers await when you hold to the truth of the scripture but now herein lies part of the problem critical thinking as a general skill in society is not very sharp for a lot of people And critical thinking, unfortunately, is also not something that a lot of Christians are able to do very effectively, to where they can explain not only what they believe, but why they believe it and why they believe it's credible. And I think much of the lack of spiritual fervor that we see in churches and among professing Christians is because many people are not sure if the Bible is valid or relevant for today's world. And they've listened to lies from people that want to take the underpinning out. And as a result of it, their critical thinking skills are not very sharp. I love this quote by the late R.C. Sproul. He said, you don't have to give up your intellect to trust the Bible. He said, you have to give up your pride. Now, I want you to think about that just for a moment, because There's a lot of truth to that, that people that think they're just a notch smarter than everybody else are going to tell you what it really means. Now, it doesn't matter what it's meant to the church or to orthodoxy for the last 2,000 years. You've got people who think they're smarter than ultimately God is, and they sit in judgment on the scripture, and they'll tell you things that nobody else has ever thought of, or if they have, it's been from a heretical foundation, and yet they're purporting it to be truth. Critical thinking helps us be able to understand what we believe and why we believe it. Now, St. Augustine is a man who emerged in the late 4th century after a life of great sin, uh, in the worst kind of sin, and he emerged as a rigorous defender of the Christian faith once God got a hold of him and he was saved. He responded forcefully to the pagans' allegations that Christian beliefs were simply superstitious or barbaric. And he felt that intellectual inquiry into the faith was to be understood as faith-seeking understanding. Now, I like that phrase. I think it's valid. Faith-seeking understanding. And he said to believe is to think with assent. He said it's an act of the intellect determined not merely by reason, but also by the will. Faith involves a commitment to believe in a God, to believe God, and to believe in God. And in his work on Christian doctrine, he makes it clear that Christian teachers um, need to be able to interact with this line of reasoning and pagan thinking. And he points out that if what we believe is true, then it's going to stand up under scrutiny. And that's the bottom line of how we're going to approach this. So I'm going to ask and answer this question in these few minutes that we have. How can we sharpen our critical thinking skills? How can we sharpen our critical thinking skills? Well, number one, you can sharpen your critical thinking skills by loving the truth. By loving the truth. Now... We're not sure the specific problem that Paul addressed in verse 19. We jumped in at verse 12, but at verse 19, he's beginning to address some more specific issues. Uh, There may have been some abuses that were going on in the church where people were abusing the gift of prophecy in the church. And there's this concept of prophetic utterances that are mentioned. Now, in the early church, there was the office of prophet, Uh, that's Ephesians 4. There was also the spiritual gift of prophecy that we read about in 1 Corinthians 12. The offices seemed to be more or less temporary in nature, meaning that once the foundation was laid with the Scripture and the superstructure of the church had begun to be built, these giftings and callings functioned not in the same way because they weren't as necessary. Greg Beale said that the point for the modern church is that we guard the truth of prophetic scriptural revelation, and we reject false teachings that are supposedly grounded on this revelation. It's very common for people who maybe are using similar language, they're coming maybe from similar backgrounds, but they use the wording to present something that is totally different, and that would be an abuse of a prophetic utterance anybody can claim that something is from god we've all heard it the lord told me god gave me a vision i had a dream and so on now can god give a dream absolutely and he still does i believe and we hear reports of that in places on the mission field where um, god has spoken to people in unique ways but yet it's not normative Uh, can god Lead somebody to do something? Absolutely. But it's not a subjective, I do what I want to do, and then I say, God told me to do it. It's a prompting that I might have from the Holy Spirit, and it's always going to be consistent with the Word. So, what we can be certain of is if you think that God has told you to do something that is contrary to the Word, you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt it is not from God. And I've heard it many times through the years, listen, pastor, I know what the scripture says, but, and then people tell you what they're going to do, regardless of what the scripture has said. So when we're talking about this here, we're referring to God's genuine leading and not abusing that or making something of it that it's not. We also should be careful about what we accept as true. There are a lot of professing believers that are gullible. That's the nicest way I could think to say it. They buy into whatever they see on the news. They buy into whatever the political narrative is. They buy into whatever somebody else is telling them. It is flat gullible. Critical thinking says we're not going to be gullible. We're going to be anchored in the truth. We should also be careful not to limit God. If we calculate what God can do by our own calculations or our own resources, we run the risk of quenching the spirit, of grieving the spirit, And we should be careful as well not to trust in our own routines, meaning that we can go through the motions and we can do it many times and we can still be wrong. Uh, Lewis Ferry Schaefer said, The Spirit is quenched by any unyieldedness to the revealed will of God. If we only had verses 19 and 20 in this passage that we read, the church might assume that everything uh, that is a prophetic utterance Uh, should be accepted but the balance is in the discussion that follows the balance is in verse 21 and following where we're told to critically uh, examine to test everything and we're to test everything in light of the bible so if we believe that scripture is our inspired inerrant and infallible guide for determining truth and error And if we believe that our God never contradicts himself, then we can hold to some foundational principles without any wavering, and we can be confident in those. Critically examine everything uh, and understand that there are genuine ideas and experiences, and there are counterfeit ideas and experiences that look similar, and then there's just flat-out lies. So it's almost like a spectrum. And I would say that the flat out lies are the easiest ones to identify because they're in such stark contrast with the body of truth that we have. It's the counterfeit ones that are trickier because they're close. They're using the same language, same wording, same approach. And sometimes people are confused by that. Jesus warned that false prophets are wolves who describe themselves as sheep. Matthew 24 and verse 11, Says many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. And then, verse 24 of Matthew 24 says, For false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, even possi- if possible, even the elect. And of course, that's in the framework of the uh, end times. So, the key question that we must ask if we want to apply this, this particular point is does this line up with Scripture? And if it doesn't line up with Scripture, it's false. Okay? There's not great complexity here. If God says something and we believe what he says is true, then that's our question. And if we condone error, we will compromise eventually. Or we will celebrate compromise in others If we're not solid in our convictions and we condone error, Ray Pritchard said, What we do not oppose, we tolerate. What we tolerate, we accept. What we accept, we praise. And what we praise, we practice. Our age has been called the age of enlightenment skepticism. There was an article that was put out on that several years ago Enlightenment skepticism. Basically saying that we live in a world that does not believe in truth. Um, and against a similar cultural circumstance, the Apostle John has some words of wisdom for us along these lines. And I'm going to reference now Second John, and beginning in verse 7. And I want to read through verse 11. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you don't lose what we have worked for, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who does not remain in Christ's teaching but goes beyond it does not have God. The one who remains in that teaching, this one has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your home and do not greet him. For the one who greets him shares in his evil works." Now, you might know a little bit about 2 John. 2 John was one of the last letters written in the New Testament era, probably somewhere around 85 to 90 A.D. And it was against an interesting cultural and spiritual backdrop that it was written because the faith was spreading. But as the faith was spreading, groups were proliferating that opposed the truth. You had most commonly the Judaizers who thought that The law and what was taught about Christ had to be melded together. You had the Arians and the Modalists and the um, Sibelians and the Nicolaitans and so on. And God seems to have spoken through John here, giving us a clear word about how we're to be on alert. And John mentions truth five times in four verses. That's for emphasis. But truth that he was referring to was the teaching that had been passed down from the apostles. And we can equate uh, these, these ideas. To know the Bible is to know the truth. And we are to respond to false teachers according to the Bible. How are we to do that? Guard against them. Have no fellowship with them. Avoid them, reject them, refute them, refuse them, and we live in a sin-fallen world. But we don't have to support things that are not true. In fact, we have a responsibility not to, as Christians. So we look to Jesus ultimately, who embodies the truth, and He is the truth. He's the Son of God. He's the standard of righteousness. He's the fountain of purity. He is altogether lovely. He's an admirable Savior. He's the source of all virtue. And I think the very first and most important thing you can do if you want to sharpen your critical thinking is love the truth. Know what you believe. And then when something's brought alongside it, you can say, even, I may not know exactly why that's not true, but that's different from what the Bible says. And that's your starting point for discovery to know whether or not somebody is telling you something um, that is accurate. And then second, Sharpen your critical thinking by guarding your mind, by guarding your mind. We look now to 2 Corinthians 10 and verse 3 through 5, and I want to speak here to the issue of strongholds in particular. Second Corinthians 10, beginning in verse 3, says, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, in the most literal sense, we all walk according to the flesh in our physical life. And all that means is we're flesh and blood. We struggle with common things in life. Every human being has similar needs, similar struggles just different context. And Paul makes it clear, however, that even though he existed according to the flesh, that the warfare that we wage with the truth is not according to the flesh. He's saying essentially when you fight, your weapons are not material but spiritual. If you're going to fight a spiritual battle, then you need tools, you need weapons that are suited for spiritual war. And the carnal weapons were the manipulative and deceitful ways that his opponents had, the things that they said and the things that they taught. And even the Corinthians themselves were known to fight with their words and their perception of power and human schemes and programs. And it does come down to the fact that we have to choose between light and darkness. And we cannot ignore the spiritual reality. We cannot ignore the spiritual reality because there is a spiritual battle that goes on constantly for our minds. And it is brutal. It's intense. It's unrelenting. It's unfair. And no one in the world has a completely pure mind, but we're striving for it because we're looking to Christ uh, for that in the mind of Christ. Paul wrote in Ephesians 6 and verse 10 and 11, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength and put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. So we learn how to recognize the way that the spiritual enemy works and we need to learn how to overcome the systems of the devil that are not by flesh and blood uh, or not overcoming them by political action, but rather our weapons are mighty and they are for... The victory that Jesus has already won for us. Now, you may have heard the, the term uh, psyops. Uh, for those of you who have been in the military, you might have particularly heard it, but it is a military term. And it, it, it's a term that means uh, psychological operations used in psywar, which is basically a, another military term that means psychological warfare. So this term is a term that is used to denote any action which is practiced mainly by psychological uh, efforts or by psychological methods with the aim of a planned response from people. So in other words, you're, you're affecting, manipulating the outcome. So the goal is not only to change your opinion, the goal is to change your entire attitude to whatever or whoever is behind the psychological operation. And the devil has a strategy. It's a psyops type strategy, and it's a good one, because what he's doing is he's using the things that are common to all of us to influence us and to cause us to think in certain ways. So culture is an area that we're particularly vulnerable. Music is one that's part of that. What we read feeds into it. What we watch feeds into it. Social media, certainly. I would say that the number one discipler of the younger generation right now is hands down social media. That's the number one discipler. It's not mainstream media, that's for old folks. That, it, it's not anything else but social media that is having the dominant influence. And that's why we've got to have these critical thinking skills. Um, Paul also listed the spiritual weapons that he used in Ephesians 6. And these weapons are mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, what are strongholds? They're anything that contradict the truth of God and are sinful. In Paul's homeland, before he was born, Roman armies destroyed many rocky fortresses to defeat the people who had taken refuge in the strongholds. Um, Maybe Paul had witnessed some of those ruins and thought that uh, the battle was great in order to overcome these strongholds and to conquer them. And I think he could have been using a, a visible illustration to make a spiritual point. Of course, that's common in the Scripture. So a stronghold can be a worldview. It could be materialism. It could be naturalism. It could be relativism or atheism or you fill in the blank. And a stronghold begins with an attitude or a perspective in our lives and it could be something along the lines of fear or guilt or insecurity or bitterness or unforgiveness. And all of a sudden it's a stronghold. And it weakens us spiritually. Strongholds can be pulled down. They can be. Of particular interest, Paul were the strongholds in their minds and their hearts. And they made arguments against God's mind and God's methods. They held on to every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And that's why the command here is to bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Our thoughts must be brought captive to Christ in an obedience to Him. And the word translated as take captive literally means to conquer or to bring into submission. A generation ago when the computer revolution had just begun not many people knew what they were doing. A lot of mistakes were being made, and even it's trial by error now in a lot of ways, but uh, they discovered an unalterable truth in those early studies. If the raw data that is input into a system is bad, the computer cannot do anything good with it. It's the garbage in, garbage out concept, right? So, This is true spiritually. If we're taking bad information in, that's not going to help us. It's not going to spiritually edify us. It's not going to help us make better decisions or to think critically. And I would say what's true of computers is also true of the human mind. So how can you guard your mind? Well, you can guard your mind by filling your mind with Scripture. We're coming back to this point again, and it won't be the last time. Psalm 101 and verse 3 says, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. You can guard your mind from spiritual pollution. Proverbs 15 and verse 14 says a wise person is hungry for knowledge while the fools feed on trash, contemporary uh, translation. You can focus your mind on what is good. Philippians 4 outlines that for us, the things that are true, things that are honorable, things that are just and pure and lovely. If there's anything commendable, if there's any moral excellency in any of it, if there's anything praiseworthy, Paul says, dwell on these things, meditate on these things, make them a focus of your life, and then you can pray for purity of mind. Psalm 51 in verse 6 said, surely you desire truth in the inner parts and you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. John Piper wrote what I think is the most important missions book of the last generation, certainly. Certainly of the 20th century. It's been updated several times. It's entitled, Let the Nations Be Glad. And he wrote this in Let the Nations Be Glad. He said, life is war. That's not all it is, but it is always that. Our weakness in prayer is owing largely to our neglect of this truth. Prayer is primarily a wartime walkie-talkie for the mission of the church as it advances against the powers of darkness and unbelief. God has given us prayer as a wartime tool so that we can call headquarters for everything we need as the kingdom of Christ advances in the world. It's a battle for your mind. It's a battle of overcoming strongholds. It's a battle of using spiritual weapons rather than the weapons of the flesh. It's a battle of understanding what's going on and driving these counter forces that are contrary to the character of God and the Word of God. Guard your mind. And then third and finally, if you want to sharpen your critical thinking, you need to sharpen your critical thinking by testing all things. Now I want to come back here now to 1 John chapter 4, and I want to read uh, several verses here as we begin this point in 1 John 4. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming. Even now it's already in the world. Verse 4. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. Now, I believe John's words are... Vital for the preservation of truth. After telling us um, that God's commandment is that we believe in the name of His Son Jesus Christ and love one another, He now tells us in chapter 4 and verse 1: Hey, don't believe everything. That's what some of y'all need to hear. Don't, hey, don't believe everything. Be critical as you think about things. And he especially had in mind the false teachers who had left the church. And they were drawing people after them. And uh, Ray Stedman said, it's significant that this warning comes in the midst of John's discourse about love. Because false spirits, I think it's an incredibly important point, so I'm going to stick on this just for a second. Because false spirits tend to make a great deal about the subject of love. Every cult, every deviant group, every false movement makes its appeal in the name of love think about how that applies today churches that are contradictory to the bible the ones that think they're just a notch smarter and they know better than two thousand years of orthodoxy since the church was born they talk a lot about love and acceptance and ultimately it's a cloak it's a veil because love without truth is falsehood And it's important that we are aware of what we're up against. And Paul emphasized the demonic aspect of false teachers. In 1 Timothy 4 and verse 1, he said, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. So the deceitful spirits and the demonic doctrines are taught by people who are caught up in things that are contrary to the truth. So what is discernment? Discernment is the ability to decide between truth and error, between right and wrong. And it requires us making careful distinctions in our thinking about the truth. Discernment is a spiritual gift that some people have, according to uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 10. But it's also a discipline that we can apply. So it, it, a parallel of this would be that some people have the gift of Giving. But just because some people have the spiritual gift of giving and they get a special blessing from it and are especially good at it and blessed because of it doesn't diminish the fact that the rest of us are supposed to give as a spiritual discipline, out of obedience. It's the same way with discernment. Some people have a spiritual gift of of discernment. But we all have the responsibility to apply discernment. Tim Chalice said spiritual discernment is really the way God allows us to see the world, to see it through his eyes. He gives us the Bible as a lens to see the world the way that he sees it. So I think discernment is needed because of spiritual warfare. John's teaching assumes that behind all truth in the spiritual realm is the spirit of truth. And behind all spiritually false teaching is the spirit of error led by Satan, but including the demonic forces. So behind every false teaching is an evil spirit promoting the errors that they teach. Now let's make a connection in the meta narrative here. From the time Eve was deceived in the garden until the last days when the final Antichrist will deceive the world, evil spirits have and will promote false teaching to lead people away from God and the truth. We should not be surprised or alarmed because Satan is described as presenting himself as an angel of light. He doesn't present himself as an angel of darkness. He presents himself as an angel of light to deceive. And Paul warned that they would disguise themselves, the false teachers would disguise themselves as apostles of Christ and as servants of righteousness. So we need spiritual discernment because evil is promoting error at every turn. And we need discernment that is based specifically, according to this passage, on the confession about Jesus. So we, we might process it like this. A false teacher may seem to be promoting something that is attractive. He might even be able to do something that appears to be like a miracle or cast out demons or speak in tongues or something else that seems dramatic. But do they lead people to follow a false god? That's the real test. And to confess this specific error that he's addressing here, to confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh means that you agree with that as a statement, but it's more. So like this is at the heart of it, and I think this is a specific situation he's addressing, but the problem is even the demons would agree that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has come in the flesh. So the difference is, do we confess this truth and also surrender to Him as Lord? So do we believe it, but then also act on it in faith? And when it says has come, that he has come, it implies his eternal existence and his humanity as well as his, as his deity. And one of the issues they were facing was the group called the Docetists who taught that all matter is evil. So when they taught that all matter was evil, what they were doing was they were conflicting with the biblical concept of the incarnation. And the idea was that Jesus was only a spirit who seemed to be a real man. And I think that's the main issue that he's probably addressing here. And to deny that Jesus is God and man, eternally so, is to deny the Christian faith. John Calvin observed in his commentary, he said, yet he only repeats here what we have met with before, that as Christ is the object at which faith aims, so he is the stone at which all heretics stumble as long then as we abide in Christ, there's safety. But when we depart from him, faith is lost and all truth is rendered void. Discernment is needed in response to the witness. The scripture begins with uh, emphatic pronouns here, you, they, we. The first two portraying different responses, that of true believers and then that of false teachers and people who follow them. And Those who um, overcome false teaching are from God because we persevere. Those who teach error and follow their teaching are from the world. And the way to measure discernment is a person's response to the witness about Christ. John 16 and verse 13 says, but when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and he will tell you what is yet come. There's a lot of people in our society today, particularly, who are guided by emotionalism. They're guided by propaganda. They're taught things that are clearly contrary to the scripture. And somehow I have to do gymnastics to validate what they think. And there is a definite indoctrination against the rule of truth that we encounter every single day. So what that says is, you've got to know what is right, and you've got to have the courage to do what is right. Test all things. Now I'll come back to Colossians 2 and verse 8, one of our theme verses for the study. And I'm going to wrap up with this. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ if you want to sharpen your critical thinking and develop your critical thinking, you need to love the truth, you need to guard your mind, and you need to test all things. You need to be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 who tested everything that they were taught about the scripture. And to do that, practically speaking, you've got to consider information that you're intaking or that you're encountering. You've got to analyze the information and have enough sense to compare it and see whether or not it lines up with the Scripture. You've got to synthesize the information if it's something that is useful so that you can then apply the information to your life and then you review the outcome. How'd that work? Because the Scripture's practical. Scripture's life-changing. Scripture's wisdom. Scripture's never going to lead you astray. And if you develop... Your love for truth and you guard your mind and you test all things, then you can implement critical thinking in a way that is helpful. Now, I want to say this in conclusion I, it is shocking to me still, people who have been brought up in the truth, who know the truth, who were raised on the truth, who decide at some point they're just smarter than God, they just know better. That's not what the Bible really says. They take the tactic of the serpent in the garden. Well, did God really say? And I heard about a pastor here recently, and I won't give too many details, but I heard about a pastor recently um, who was raised in the foundational truths of the faith, and now he has completely abandoned a lot of what is Orthodox Christianity. He now holds to universalism, so everybody's going to be saved in the end, doesn't matter what religion you are, all roads are going to lead to the top of the mountain, Um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg of everything that he's bit off, and somewhere along the way, he took a sharp turn, and we need to be cautious and careful that we're not getting pulled into something like that, that is unhelpful for us, contrary to the word, and hurts us rather than helps us in our faith. And I also want to say finally, critical thinking does not mean continual cynicism. Okay, It's easy to become a cynic to where you believe nothing and you're cynical about everything and then you get negative and you get critical about everything in your life. That's not what I'm presenting here. What I'm presenting here is loving the truth so that you have a good framework and being willing to be on guard, and, and as you're on guard, you're living your life for the Lord, reaching people with the good news, and not pulled in so that you're gullible about things that are not true. So there's a balance here. We're not promoting being cynics about everything, we're promoting keeping our eyes on Christ so that we have something to compare everything else to. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for the ability to use our minds. You've given us discernment and wisdom and knowledge and truth in your word. Help us to process those things in a way that, and to use those tools that we've been given by the power of the spirit so that we would not be led astray and uh, lead other people astray even worse. Protect us, Lord. And I pray you protect this church. There are great churches, many that have fallen by the wayside. who who once promoted the the true gospel that honored your word and exalted your son, who went off track somewhere along the way. I pray that would not be the case here, but we would continue to be a voice and a proponents for truth. And as we do that, we'd love people so that they would see the great love of Christ and his grace and mercy. We pray you'd bless the uh, worship ministry to follow and the rest of the week in front of us. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.